Hi, Sam. Good morning. Good morning. One of these days, I'm going to get a big good morning back, right? Right, Charlene? Thanks, for, thanks Charlene. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds uh, for September 17th, 2014. Um, we, um, you may be grateful that this is my last opportunity to invite you, cajole you, guilt you, excite you to join our Imagine Chad Summit this weekend, the culminating uh, effort of our process that's gone on all summer. And as I said, hopefully people are pleased and proud of the work they've already done in identifying our positive core and our dream statement. Uh, we will have the chance to plan to make that dream a reality and go forward. You won't hear the end of Imagine Chad after the, the 7th September 19th and 20th, but um, I won't keep bugging you. Uh, good things are happening. I will be able to have a chance to update us all in October. Uh, quick, quick note, Sue Tansky, hopefully some of you will have a chance to call or write your senators or congressperson. Sue Tansky has single-handedly turned a bill that is in the markup phase in the Interstate Commerce Committee, I believe, on e-cigarettes and got Senator Ayotte from uh, the great state of New Hampshire to sign on to make that a bipartisan bill, which these days is no small feat. So um, thank and congratulate Sutansky if you see her. And then at a point, you'll have a chance to lobby your Congress people. Um, we're continuing our exciting beginning of the year September Grand Rounds uh, with visiting speakers and sort of non-traditional biomedical topics. Uh, not that this isn't an important biomedical topic. I actually uh, sadly learned last night that a patient of mine that was not a primary patient, but I was involved in the care of it when I was in Akron uh, in the past 10 years, uh, a young woman who became an intensive care nursery nurse actually lost her battle with um, anorexia nervosa at a young age, 24 years old. So this is very much a real condition we're going to hear about today. Uh, it is the um, condition, mental health condition in DSM-5 with the highest mortality rate. Some estimate 20 to 25 percent in young adulthood. Um, we have an excellent speaker. And I want to thank Bridget Logan, Dr. Bridget Logan, PhD, who is in our department, as well as our sections of urology and nephrology, who um, secured Dr. Brumberg to join us and is going to introduce Dr. Brumberg. Delighted to have Dr. Joan Jacobs Brumberg visiting with us today. She comes to us from Cornell University, where she's a professor emeritus. She's been teaching at Cornell since 1977. She's had unique appointments um, teaching history, human development, and women's studies. Fascinating combination, I think. Um, her research and writing has been primarily about women and girls. Um, she has awards from the National Endowment for Humanities the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Guggenheim Foundation. Two of her most wonderful books, uh, one is called The Body Project, which she'll be speaking about at Dartmouth College this afternoon at 4. That's how I came to know Joan. This book came out in 1997 and is my most favorite book. Um, and I wrote to Joan and asked if she was doing any speaking engagements and might she come here. Um, so that, that book is most wonderful. And if you're able to get to the college today at 4, it's, it's going to be a wonderful talk. Today, she'll be speaking about Fasting Girls, which is a history of anorexia nervosa. This book has won uh, four interdisciplinary awards. Both The Body Project and Fasting Girls are widely used in college courses in women's studies. 
in medical anthropology classes and in American studies. Joan has also been a McDowell Fellow in Petersburg, New Hampshire. She has two granddaughters, and we're really glad to have her here today. Is that on now? Okay. Uh, I wanted to begin by telling you that I'm not a recovered anorectic and I'm not uh, the mother or the grandmother of one. And I make this uh, distinction at the outset so you'll understand my perspective. As Bridget said, I'm a social and cultural historian and my interest in eating disorders uh, and body image springs from observations uh, really of social change uh, within my own lifetime. When I graduated from university in 1965, uh, eating disorders were not a common concern. Uh, in fact, anorexia nervosa was virtually unknown on campuses. And 20 years later, uh, in the early 1980s at Cornell, uh, everyone had heard of it, especially after the well-publicized death of Karen Carpenter in 1983. Anorexia nervosa was in the talk of women students, and it was becoming a mental health problem uh, on college campuses. I got lots of invitations to come talk when people found out what I was doing. And it generated a host of new support groups um, and mental health services. In the early 18, uh, 1980s, um, I got involved then in trying to figure out where anorexia nervosa had come from and why it was becoming the characteristic psychopathology of the contemporary American adolescent girl. This New Yorker cartoon, I remember, struck me as being very timely. Um, the, you know, the daughter is assuming uh, that the starving people that she's seen on television have anorexia nervosa. The father is saying, no, no, that's not it. Now, in the 21st century, eating disorders are still with us. The numbers uh, for both anorexia nervosa and bulimia remain relatively constant from what I have been told and what I've read. And today they coexist with the latest disease du jour, if you will, um, cutting for self-injurious behavior. And the comorbidity there between the two um, is quite high. Now, the disjuncture in my own experience between 1965 and 1985 raised a number of questions that became the basis of my 1988 book, Fasting Girls. And they also informed the book that I wrote after that, The Body Project. The questions I asked then were very simple, uh, but they're still critical in terms of understanding where we are today in terms of women and their bodies. The first one, is anorexia nervosa a new disease? Basic historical question. Uh, second, if not, has the disease changed over time? Uh, and then the third, why and how does a disease become more prominent 
more popular, if you will, in one time period than in another. So let's go to my first question. Is anorexia nervosa a new disease? Uh, anorexia nervosa was actually named and identified in the 1870s. 1870s in England, France, and the United States at almost the same time. Anorexia, uh, meaning lack of appetite, occurs in biomedical conditions. You know this, like tuberculosis or cancer. But it's the nervosa in this case, uh, which meant lack of appetite from nervous in the 19th century. That meant psychological causes. Um, and this was opposed to the usual wasting diseases uh, that plagued 19th century medicine. There are two doctors associated with the naming of the process, uh, Sir William Withy Gull, a high status London physician. He was actually the physician to Queen Victoria who did not have anorexia nervosa. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Charles Lesec, a neurologist in Paris who was chairman of the clinical medicine at La Piete Hospital. Uh, this is a spy drawing of Gull. And the reason I'm showing you this drawing of Dr. Gull is that it was published in Vanity Fair, uh, which gives you some indication of his aristocratic status. And it might should also make you think about his patients and the kind of clientele that he had. Uh, Gull used the name anorexia nervosa, la sec la anorexia hysterique. But both were talking about the same thing, emaciated girls in adolescence and young adulthood who did not menstruate and stopped eating for no biomedical reason. Um, those of you who you folks know about 19th century medicine, you know that diseases were named for doctors, Addison's, Parkinson's, uh, you know, we could go on, Hodgkin's. Gull was always a little miffed uh, <laughs> that it didn't happen for him. Uh, Gull's disease is not what we're dealing with, you know, his other, his generic name stuck. While both Gull and Lasek reported the same medical phenomenon, their clinical reports were as, uh, were as distinct as um, English and French culture. Gull represented, presented graphic before and after pictures of his patients with a sparse authoritative commentary on how he made the diagnosis by ruling out organic pathology and then enforcing an eating regimen supervised by a trained nurse. This was important in his protocol. There was almost no discussion of what the patient said or about why uh, she could not eat. In other words, Gull gave his adolescent patients very little voice. And here are some pictures of his uh, patients. I remember the thrill of finding these at the Countway Library uh, back in the 1980s. These are before and after. And uh, they're almost always presented that way to show progress. Uh, the top, of course, is the sick girl, and then she is better. And note the jewelry and the clothing, which are markers of social class. That's Miss A. Here's Miss B. They really have the same message. And Miss C. And Miss C looks far more <laughs> emaciated than either Miss A or Miss B. As for Gull's treatment, he wrote, I do not prescribe medicines because the nursing and the food are more important than anything else. Dressed in heavy clothing, 
with warm bed rest, including a hot water bottle pressed along the spine. These emaciated young English women received a nourishing but extremely bland meatless diet, uh, small bits of food every two hours. Gull's clinical response was rooted in the idea that the physician should never pander to the patient's unhappiness uh, over being forced to eat, or her parents' desire either to avoid a big scene. Uh, in some cases, he thought the best way to achieve the moral authority that a cure required was to just take the girl out of her home, separate her from her home environment, um, which he called the parentectomy. <laughs> uh, and this was done in some cases. Uh, many girls were sent on you know, expensive trips to the south of France or uh, the Isle of Wight. And here are some more cases from Gull's repertoire. Uh, this is an, an 1888 case, again, the before and the after. She's looking quite, she looks quite young, uh, given the breast development. And this is where this young woman was treated, in the Rachel Ward at London Hospital, named because it was an all-girls ward. This was a device for force feeding, um, usually in an asylum. Um, no, you know, no, no, no IVs, uh, and this is another way of force feeding. The patient is not a woman; it's a male. But it was very difficult for me to find a picture like this. Um, and I show you this because this is the kind of environment that most middle class and upper class people preferred for their daughters if they did develop this mysterious condition. Um, they wanted to send them to small, home-like cottage hospitals. This one is in England. It was the scene of the first reported death from anorexia nervosa in 1888. Remember, people avoided hospitals. They thought hospitals were place for, uh, place for uh, the drunk, the uh, despised, the degraded. Uh, it was not a place that you, where you wanted to be. And this five foot four Bristol schoolgirl weighed 49 pounds at the time of her death. First published picture of a death from anorexia nervosa. Doctors attributed the death, listen to this, to the mother's intervention, establishing a pattern of mother blaming uh, that some say still persists in the clinical literature. Uh, that's up to you, those of you who are familiar with that. Often the notion is that it's the, the, the mother has the problem as well as the girl. Uh, now back to Charles Lasek. Uh, Lasek, as opposed to Gull, was much more interested in the psychological dynamics of the anorectic's food refusal than in the battle for moral authority. The French uh, clinical literature uh, relied more on photography and uh, Lasek was more interested in the family. This is, these are two of Lasek's patients. And notice also that the uh, use of photography, not engraving, um, and also the eyes are covered. So there's an emerging notion of privacy uh, in terms of information about patients. Um, this is the cover of my book, Fasting Girls, on both the hardcover and the paperback. And I chose it because I think it represents uh, the dynamic that Lasek was aware of 
And this photograph is actually from the George Eastman House uh, Museum in Rochester, New York. Uh, Lasek was the first person to provide a sense of the pressurized family environment in anorexia nervosa. In effect, he anticipated what many people today now call family systems theory, right? Uh, Lasek was interested in not just what the emaciated body of the patient uh, felt or what was going on in that body, but in what he called and these are his words, the preoccupations of those that surround her. The two, he explained, are intimately connected, and we should acquire an erroneous idea of the disease by confining ourselves to an examination of the patient. For Lasek, um, like Salvatore Mnuchin, who would be a contemporary equivalent in a way, uh, the family and the daughter all had anorexia nervosa. Everybody has it. Um, through savvy watching and listening, Lasek also suggested that food refusal uh, between a daughter and her parents constituted a form of emotional conflict. So he's much more, he's a Frenchman, he's much more concerned about what's going on at the table. Um, Lasek was very smart about describing the offering and the refusal that characterized the anorexic, anorectic family, uh, the pushing of food, the begging of the child to eat as a form of love, uh, uh, usually between uh, mothers and daughters. Now, what I want to do now is just go on and show you some visual images of mothers and daughters. Uh, Images that show young women languishing and in a kind of a state of melancholia. Um, a mother at a bedside of a wasting girl. Wasting girls, I'm sorry, wasting diseases were so prevalent and critical at this time that the doctor's first task was to determine the source of the emaciation. In general, 19th century physicians concentrated on the problem of differential diagnosis, you know, how to tell one disease from another, and on the reduction of the physical symptoms. Not much attention was paid to the psychology of anorexia nervosa or the question of the patient's motivation. And at one point, uh, William Withy Gull explained in a paper that he wrote and gave at a medical meeting that the disorder um, was what he called a morbid perversity of the adolescent girl. Um, he or others called it uh, a hysteria for the junior miss. So before Freud, uh, the meaning of not eating was not explored and few questions were asked about feelings. A cure was accomplished, it was thought, when the patient gained weight and added flesh. Now in my book, Fasting Girls, I tried to penetrate the emotional world of girls like this in the 19th century. The what was the anorectic thinking in the 19th century? Why did girls restrict their food in a world before modern media influences? Everybody was blaming this on modern media. So I was trying to figure out, well, you know, if you had the disease before that, 
then what's going on and what might be their mindset. Um, I believe the Victorian anorectics uh, used the appetite as a voice. Food and eating were loaded with negative meanings, especially for girls of the middle and upper classes, which is exactly where anorexia nervosa was born and also by and large remains. Uh, food and eating were problematic for girls of privilege because they symbolized sexuality and lack of self-restraint. Control of the body and its processes and fluids were important to the Victorian uh, woman. Some uh, in diaries and letters indicate that they do not like to admit, they did not like to admit that they defecated or urinated. And they would boast that the calls of nature happened to them but a few times a week. Um, many young women, I'm more of this kind of languishing imagery, uh, many young women wanted to be pure and live an ascetic life without any of the appetites of the flesh. And many <clears throat> were vegetarians because meat was a hot food associated with carnality and sexuality. And these ideas were, were reflected in medical practice in that day. For example, if a doctor wanted to stimulate menstruation in a late blooming girl, and that would have been 17 or 18 then, uh, he would advise the mother to add meat to the diet. Conversely, when a young woman seemed to be precociously interested in uh, boys or a bit too forward or a little tardy, uh, the mother was advised to take away meat as a device for tamping down her sexuality. And my students uh, have made a lot of very funny observations about how we could use vegetarianism today as a social control. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, in effect, the Victorian anorectic wanted a slim body as a symbol of her distance from the working class. She did not want to look like a milkmaid or a farmer's daughter. To her, being called robust was actually an insult uh, because it implied lower class status. Although a specific cause is hard to determine, Victorian girls who did not eat had the power to disrupt family life. These girls were rejecting food, the most basic of the gifts provided by their uh, comfortable parents. In this emotionally charged and materially privileged environment, the appetite became less of a biological drive and more of a social and emotional instrument. And I would argue that this is even more so today. Contemporary clinicians report that appetite disorders uh, exist now in a wide range of psychopathologies, uh, not just in anorexia nervosa or bulimia. So that's the history. Now, anorexia nervosa remained a rare and exotic disorder uh, well into the 20th century. These are the first published photos of an American anorectic uh, taken at a private psychiatric hospital, and I believe it's in New Hampshire. It was in New Hampshire. That's what your book says. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's probably in Concord. Uh, thank you. 
I wrote it a while ago, and I have this memory that it's New Hampshire. Okay, and it's from the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, 1932. Uh, and there are three essential techniques for uh, managing anorexia nervosa at this moment, a change of environment, forced feeding, and psychotherapy. Uh, plus, there was some limited experimentation, largely at the Mayo Clinic, uh, with hormonal extracts that were believed to affect metabolism. I actually had the fun of going to the Mayo Clinic and reading those case materials, um, which they had fortunately saved. Um, this is backwards on the bottom, I'm sorry. Uh, these are images of anorexia nervosa in the medical literature of the 1940s. Yet as late as the 1960s, most physicians had only read about the disorder and they had rarely seen it in their clinical training unless they specialized in psychiatry. I had people say that to me all the time in the 1980s. Oh, I read about that, but I've never seen it. You know, they were uh, physicians who were a little bit older uh, than I am. 1940s type of photograph of, of the body of the anorectic. By the 1980s, however, pediatricians and internists, as well as psychiatrists, were facing the starving disease uh, up close. Their understanding of the disorder was enhanced by the work of Hilda Brook, uh, an emigre physician and pediatric endocrinologist who began work in the US in the 1930s studying, interestingly enough, fat boys with Froelich syndrome but before turning to skinny girls with anorexia nervosa. Uh, this is Brooke's best-known book. It's a little worn. It was my copy. <laughs> but she also wrote clinical texts as well as newspaper and magazine articles, a few in collaboration with what she called her gal pal, Epi Letterer, better known as Ann Landers. Um, Brooke, who was called Lady Anorexia at the time of her death in 1984, elaborated the psychology of anorexia nervosa far beyond uh, Gull's initial description. And she pointed to the role of adolescent development and sexuality issues, as well as mimetic behavior, what she called Me Too anorexia. Brooke herself had helped to popularize the disease, and by the 1980s, she asserted that while it was still an adolescent female disorder, the numbers had increased and the symptomatology was also changing. All right, now here's the model that I came to uh, understand, promote, uh, and feel best with, and I think uh, the medical community does too, that anorexia nervosa is a multi-determined disorder involving biology, psychology, and culture. I felt a need to articulate this to large groups of people in the humanities who were quite um, willing to posit the idea that the whole thing was just socially constructed. They had never dealt with the medicine of this situation. Um, these are all intertwined, biology, psychology, and culture. Uh, I'm not a social scientist or a clinician, so I've kept my focus on the cultural piece as we move to 
Um, my second question, which was, has the experience of anorexia nervosa changed over time? So in other words, it's identified long ago, but has it changed? And the answer really is yes, the experience has changed. First, there are differences in the language of presentation. In the 19th century, the Victorian anorectic uh, presented somatic symptoms, not psychological ones. Typically, she said, I, I can't eat because it hurts. Uh, today, the formula statement is, I don't need to eat. I'm too fat. Or I don't need to eat. I'm well. I can, I can do my sport. Um, the modern anorectic generally displays a, a, a morbid preoccupation with her weight and a dread of fatness. And she usually maintains that her eating is not unusual. In fact, it may not be that unusual in this culture in which we live. Um, you know, she maintains that her running, her biking, her aerobics, Pilates, spinning, Zumba, <laughs> hours spent in motion uh, are all proof of her good health. Um, some of you may know this mentality as body dysmorphia. Right? This brings us naturally to a second important difference, and that is the addition of ritualistic exercise uh, to the symptom picture. Today's anorectic is not only restricting food and calories, she's expending enormous amounts of energy <coughs> deliberately burning calories in forms of physical activity that were not a part of the experience of women a century ago. Just think about it. I mean, if we just go back, I would say 75 years here in Hanover, what would people have thought of young women running around in spandex? Um, uh, you know, day and night. Uh, it, it's really a remarkable change. Now, I have to point out that there is a um, hyperactivity piece in the early cases. There were girls who would do somersaults in bed all night, or um, some who walked incessantly through the streets of London. So there does, for me, that seems to signal that there's some kind of biomedicine going on here, uh, something that's contributing to this hyperactivity. But then again, it's the culture that allows it to uh, flourish. Um, today, frenetic or ritualistic exercise is often socially sanctioned, and we're unclear, if not ambivalent, as a people about how to respond to people with exercise addiction. How much is really healthy? Uh, this means that contemporary women with anorexia nervosa are likely to be sicker and more compromised physically than those in the past. In fact, when I compared the admissions weights in anorexia nervosa cases at the Mayo Clinic in the 1930s with the 1980s, I found this to be absolutely true. Despite all our knowledge and information about eating disorders, the 1980s patients were more emaciated and more troubled than those in the 1930s. And this is probably the result of two things. The exercise factor, you know, burning more calories, the weight is lower. And I would say our increased tolerance for thinness. I used to call this, when I started doing this, the Callista Flockhart factor. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what to call it today. Angelina uh, Jolie, Kate Middleton. Um, you know, who's the 
Lindsay Lohan? I, I don't know. You, you, it's more bulimic. More bulimic, okay. Um, but certainly when you go to the supermarket, at least in Ithaca, New York, there are always pictures, I'll show you some, you know, of celebrities and the question is, how thin is she getting? Um, here are three images that speak to where we are as a culture about this kind of thing. How thin is too thin? When, you know, this was a billboard um, in California. Um, okay, now, uh, this looks like a different uh, thing entirely, right? And it is. Um, and let me explain why I'm showing this. The third change in the symptomatology, okay, I've told you about two others. The third change in the symptomatology is the introduction of bulimia. And since the 1980s, an increasing number of patients appear to mix bulimia with anorexia nervosa. Historically, there is no evidence of a binge purge syndrome until it begins to creep in in the 1920s. A fact that set me to thinking about the social and material circumstances of life for Victorian young women and what it was that made bulimia unlikely a century ago. So thus this picture of Victorian girls singing together to get you thinking about sociability versus privacy. Um, these girls may have had a shared bed as well as uh, a shared song sheet. The degree of privacy needed to support secret binging and purging was not generally available to them. They were deeply enmeshed in a single sex world with more communal activity uh, than we experience today. Uh, hair care, sewing, singing, cooking, intergenerational mother, uh, aunt, uh, niece, very, very communal. Now, in terms of hygiene, uh, this was the characteristic commode of the late 19th century. And chamber pots did not hide chronic regurgitation and its telltale signs and smells. Uh, if there was indoor plumbing, it was certainly shared with family members. And there were, you know, not a lot, few multi-bathroom homes. Um, so, in, and in addition to this, uh, what would you say, primitive technology for disposing of uh, vomit. Uh, the middle class kitchen, where you would get the stuff, uh, the food, was a territory of domestic servants. And eating in the 19th century was uh, usually around a fixed center of sociability, such as the family dinner table. So if you put these things together, it's very difficult to conceive how a Victorian girl would have acted autonomously enough to secure large amounts of food on her own and then have the time to eat it undetected. And I would add that that food was much more wholesome and wasn't as processed as the stuff that we know bulimics thrive on, which is usually high fat, high salt, and it goes down and comes up easily. Um, it's not bulgar, you know, that they're... Uh, <laughs> You know, so, and then the question for me becomes, where did she do, where would she have binged? At tea while she was visiting? Um, among the servants in the kitchen, where did she secure the food? Um, I would argue on historical grounds 
that these opportunities simply were not available uh, to Victorian young women and that bulimia was probably not part of the symptom repertoire of that error. Now, the characteristic binging and purging of the modern bulimic depends on personal freedom, such as your own car, bathroom, or apartment, uh, a desocialized eating environment, grazing, uh, lack of su supervision, and the availability uh, at almost any time of the day or night of food for purchase. And the autobiographies of former bulimics regularly mention picking up fast or prepared foods in supermarkets or convenience stores and eating alone. So in this sense, this is really the important point, the uh, bulimic symptomatology mirrors and then tragically mimics the autonomy and opportunity of contemporary women. My review of the new symptoms makes a theoretical point. If we approach anorexia nervosa from a purely biological perspective, uh, it is hard to explain changes in symptomatology over time. But when we take into account the heightened cultural pressure to be thin, as well as changes <coughs> in the role of women, the structure of the middle class household and the state of technology, all these things are not usually part of the biological model of disease. And we can see how the social and cultural climate uh, prepared the ground for a new experience of anorexia nervosa. I've left this on because uh, it says a lot, I think, about the notion of Victorian uh, girlhood and innocence. OK. Let's take on the issue of why so many eating disorders now and what it is about society and culture that generated by the late 20th century so much talk and so much pain around the issue of women's bodies. Certainly the emphasis on a slim female body is part of the story of why so many contemporary Amer American women and girls regard um, being very thin as a form of female perfection. In my book, The Body Project, I describe the evolution of a new way of thinking about the self, a shift, if you will, from good works to good looks. Uh, I also suggest that there have been many historical forces that contributed to our preoccupation with the body and elevated levels of self-scrutiny that established fertile ground for the age of anorexia. So let me highlight now some of the most relevant um, historical developments. First, uh, this is Wilbur Atwater, who invented the calorie. The calorie, right? He's a chemist at Wesleyan University who first introduced in the 1890s a new food vocabulary, proteins, fats, and carbs, as well as the idea that there was something to count. Popular magazines, such as the Ladies' Home Journal, began to hire nutritionists, often from, uh, they were trained in colleges of home economics, like the one at Cornell land-grant institutions, to write columns that advised American women how to feed the family scientifically and count calories in the process. And the younger generation, we know, taught it to their mothers. Okay, so it was teenage girls uh, about the time of World War One, and young women who begin to be diet, uh, do caloric diets, and teach it to 
their stout, mature mothers. Then there was the introduction of technologies, which increased our capacity for self-scrutiny. Um, this is a famous Winslow Homer uh, of girls weighing themselves in a country store on the same scales that weighed grain and farm animals. Uh, weighing yourself was a public act, not a private one. I don't think a lot, maybe it's just me, but I don't think most women like to weigh themselves in public. I, you know, there's a certain kind of no, that's at my number, I don't, nobody else has to know that. Uh, and this often occurred at state fairs or in a drugstore, um, and also at colleges. Uh, I found diaries that indicated that people were coming to Cornell to the gym, women, to weigh themselves on the scales where the wrestlers were weighed. So I'm sure that there was some kind of weighing exchange going on here in Hanover as well, because you must have had a wrestling team at Dartmouth very early. All right, mirrors are also a new phenomenon uh, in that only wealthy people had this kind of looking glass until the end of the 19th century. Um, and then uh, in the 1890s, this is from the Sears and Roebuck catalog, um, you begin to get mass-produced cheap mirrors so that everyone can look at their face. Um, and just think about that in terms of adolescent acne. Until you can look at your face intensely, I mean, the business of having acne is not as personally, you're not as personally sensitive to it until you can see it. Um, so the process of looking good and checking on one's face uh, gets built into modern femininity. And this painting shows a young African-American woman, uh, part of the Great Migration, uh, leaving her family in the South to go north to teach school. And what is she doing? She's checking out, she's assessing her own appearance. This escalation of self-scrutiny, looking at yourself, uh, becomes available um, to her, but would not have been available to her older uh, enslaved family. Now the modern bathroom, uh, about this is about 1918, also upped the capacity for self-scrutiny with its electric lights and running water and mirrors. Uh, the domestic bathroom scale only became a fixture of American life um, <laughs> after World War II, but it adds another dimension to our level of scrutiny of the body. Um, some of you may know that there is some feminist research that suggests that the order in which the usual physical exam goes forward, where a woman comes in, takes off her clothes, puts on a paper dress, and then goes and gets weighed, is the wrong way to do it. It's a turnoff for huge numbers of women. Uh, and the study I read suggested it was particularly difficult for women of color. So what if you weigh at the end instead of at the beginning, all right, people feel better about themselves. Women, this is a, a, was a study of women and the effect of the um, first weighing. Women's clothing ads uh, suggest, um, you know, another development that changed women's relationship to their bodies was the uh, emergence of mass-produced clothing and standard sizing. Uh, this is in the 1920s. It, it suggests that being stout is a bit of a problem. <clears throat> but the real issue I want to get to here is that as long as you had a personal seamstress 
or somebody in the family who could hide and disguise your figure faults. You didn't think about yourself the same way you did once you entered a commercial market where you were a size 6, 8, 12, whatever. Um, <coughs> the turn to mass-produced clothing had an enormous impact on how we think about ourselves as a body represented by a size. Um, and from the 1920s, thank you, uh, just to make sure you realize when dieting in the U.S. takes off, uh, dieting for flappers, the health meter was a you know popular project. I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention quickly that the triumph of movies and celebrity culture has also played a role in increasing self-scrutiny. Uh, movies were very influential in shaping the way American women and girls thought about themselves. One measure, oh, hoo hoo, yes, all right, I want to go back for a minute. Uh, this is an, and, and I want to say advertising first before I get to the movies. This is a great ad, I love this ad. I mean, I hate it at the same time. Um, this is the 20s, it's an ad for Lucky Strikes, no surprises there. Can everybody read what it says on top? The shadow which pursues us all. When I first looked at that ad, and the many audiences that I've shown it to, they think I'm talking about the shadow on the lung. That's not what this is about. I mean, it, this is an ad that is suggesting the double chin is the shadow which pursues us all, and that cigarette smoking is a healthy appetite control device. Okay? Okay, so now on to the movies. Um, yeah, Mary Pickford. And the point I want to make by showing you Mary Pickford, America's sweetheart, she made 176 films before 1920. Um, one week she could be an Indian princess. One week she could be the daughter of the Sheik of Araby. The next week she could be an orphan waif, and so on and so on. Besides adoring Mary Pickford, and there was a you know cult of Mary Pickford worshippers, girls learned from movies how you could this is all Mary Pickford how you could change your appearance or image that your image was malleable that it could be changed through makeup and clothing and slimming as it began to be called. And it's in the 1920s that girls start using the word image in adolescent diaries. They just pick up on what's going on in the visual cinematic world. Um, there's lots to be said about celebrity culture and how it impacts on the way we think about our bodies. But one thing is very clear, since the 1980s when I started this project, Fashion has become increasingly revelatory, exposing, oh, there's Mary Pickford again. Uh, here we go, exposing more and more flesh and requiring more emphasis on control and sculpting. Um, the interest in the body starts very young with mimetic, imitative behaviors. This was the good Britney Spears, and so I think they thought it was okay to have her selling milk to a little one. What interests me about these little girls in these ads is that they're, in a sense, it's not that, I don't believe that they're pre-sexual totally, but before they understand eroticism, they are making erotic moves that they have seen uh, in the culture around them. And today, beauty is defined not so much by facial characteristics as by a flat abdomen and a taut pelvis. 
and we're encouraged to work on perfecting uh, specific body parts. And medicine increasingly um, encourages us to transform ourselves through medical interventions, namely plastic surgery. And in this country, uh, this the numbers uh, are just staggering. Um, and our exposure to the idea, nip and tuck, I don't know, Miami Plastic Surgeons TV show was lousy. Um, <laughs> it was awful. Uh, the latest data on cosmetic surgery, let me just go back, uh, is, let me see here, 11.9 million Americans had some work last year, which was a 45% increase since 2003 but uh, a 465% increase since 1997. Um, and the figures on plastic surgery for the under 18 population is growing. It's important to note that scientific medicine has fueled our cult of self-scrutiny. <laughs> Within the past 30 years, beauty and health imperatives have come together in our concern about obesity. Oh, wait a minute, I'm going the wrong way. And uh, you see things like this. I mean, a public health crusade against childhood obesity. It has us on guard in all kinds of ways. Um, this actually started, you know, in the 1950s. Uh, just so we don't blame it on contemporary physicians. Uh, this line of clothing was sold deliberately as, you know, for chubbets uh, in the 50s. Uh, and, you know, in an obesophobic environment of, like the United States, weight and dieting can become a difficult issue between the generations, as well as a form of rigid moralism. Many women make it the central arena in which they work out issues of self-respect, identity, and sexuality. And some women with anorexia and bulimia turn their pathology into a form of politics. Most notably on the internet, uh, there are sites uh, that advocate uh, more weight loss stuff, I'm sorry, here we go, for symptoms and behaviors that are self-destructive and pathological. This is the Anna Prayer. You can find this in many different locations uh, on the internet. There are young people then who are developing a cyber self and socializing uh, within an electronic community that transcends you know, their, their local school or community. And we really need more research on how this kind of stuff impacts on psychopathologies uh, with young people. There are places, there are opposite kinds of websites as well. There's one that's called Proud to Be Me, uh, which has a very healthy view uh, and kind of really goes to town on this thing, but you all know what's happening here. I mean, this is a parody of uh, 23rd Psalm. Right? Right. Okay. Um, it's not true that anorexia, nervosa, and bulimia do not affect people of color. It does. Um, and it looks as though we're going to be headed for uh, 
even more precise readings of our own body flesh. Um, now, I want to end by saying something about the issue of treatment. Let's see where we are. This is the kind of stuff that we see, you know, pretty regularly. This is a feminist uh, billboard in California, actually done by some friends of mine at the University of California uh, at uh, Davis. Ooh. Wow. I thought I had another slide there. Okay. Well, let me just say something about treatment, and then I'm happy to take questions, all right? Um, when anorexia nervosa emerged on the national screen in the 1980s, psychodynamic treatments were it, and there was little diagnostic clarity. Today, along with greater specificity in diagnosis, treatment usually uh, combines cognitive behavioral interventions with antidepressants that affect serotonin. Although my understanding is that antidepressants work better with bulimia than they do with full-blown anorexia nervosa. And I'd love to hear if anybody here has some uh, information on that. In the years ahead, the therapeutic arsenal is only going to gather in strength and steam. There are also some promising new drugs with antiphobic properties uh, in the pharmacological pipeline. And new brain imaging techniques suggest that overactivity in dopamine receptors may be implicated in anorexia. Studies of twins uh, confirm that eating disorders are highly familial. Uh, with some even suggesting that a propensity for the disease may be carried on a specific chromosome. And there has been a chromosome identified. So as a historian, um, I want to highlight and applaud the ways in which the therapeutic arsenal has increased in the years since Karen Carpenter, since I started thinking about this disease. I, I admit that I'm awed by the new biology of eating disorders and what's being learned from uh, laboratory research. You know, all of this is, encourage, is encouraging. Um, you know, as the ASP used to say, you've come a long way, baby. But in the end, I still think we need to acknowledge that culture remains critical to understanding anorexia nervosa, even if there is a genetic predisposition to eating disorders. We still need to recognize that this biological predisposition is only operationalized or invoked uh, in an environment that makes slimness, and I will add youth, a cultural ideal. And that's where and why I, I, I don't feel a great deal of optimism. Uh, in fact, when I assess the current situation, um, I fear that we may be headed for even greater difficulty, meaning more sufferers, male and female, white, black, and brown, um, across the life course. So I think I'll stop there, and um, I'll take questions. I get the first question on this topic. the <laughs> floor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, our other published um, author in anorexia is in the room, Dr. Heron. But I want to oh, yes. Anyway, um, it's interesting because you may be aware of this in your, in your work, that the a current or more recent therapeutic approach, the Mondley approach, which was um, comes out of London, actually, mm -hmm. 
has echoes of Gall in it in that it posits that family therapy is in fact around getting back to feeding the patient and gaining weight, has an underpinning in that the biology is such that many believe that the serotonin uh, SSRIs don't have a basis for working with an emaciated patient recently in the dopamine serotonin. So that psychodynamic therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy or the other types of behavioral therapies are not as nearly effective until you can achieve a certain weight. And some of the therapy is very much about force feeding without the technology or tools, but within the family milieu. And I, I know Marsha would have probably commented on that. So the mm. echoes of golf mm -hmm. very, very strikingly from London, from Monsley, which mm -hmm. is sure. um, therapist. So, it's not as much a question as a, as a provocative comment. So then, Charlene, I'll let you take the next question. Um, so in speaking about the hot foods and cold foods, I wonder what you thought when I ordered my big, huge piece of cow last night at dinner. But <laughs> the question I have is, have you, has there been any change in the incidence or rates or patterns of anorexia with this huge uh, obesity epidemic? Have they seen numbers changing? Has it caused any? As far as I know, no. And I find that just fascinating that the culture, you know, we exist with uh, an appropriate concern about increasing levels of obesity. And at the same time, we have to deal with, um, you know, I wouldn't say it's an epidemic I mean, of, of eating disorders. I don't think that's the correct use of the term epidemic, but um, they seem to be holding steady. And that's a lot that mirrors the kind of culture in which we live, with extraordinary inequalities. Um, both of these diseases, if you will, um, do have some social class resonance. You know, obesity is much more a phenomenon in the uh, lower uh, and working classes, and the eating disorders tends to be, if you will, a disease privilege of uh, people who have. I mean, you know, some of the, the historical literature on anorexia nervosa is stunning for what it tells us about social class. Uh, in the first and second generation of American Jewish immigrants and uh, Italian American immigrants, there was no anorexia nervosa. If any of you come from these traditions, you know why instinctively. Grandma <laughs> would not have allowed that. Okay. Also, food was scarce, and you know what? Some one person didn't eat; somebody else ate. It's with social mobility that different groups—I um, don't want to say embrace—but they, you, you see, uh, eating disorders develop in that group. There's a stunning study of Pakistani and East Indian immigrants to London. No, eating disorders in the first generation or the second, but in the third, it begins to raise its ugly head. Um, so social class appears to have a great deal to do with the phenomenon that we're dealing with. Whether it's uh, obesity, to go back to your question, or uh, eating disorders. Although there's more bulimia among working class women than there is anorexia nervosa, from what I understand. And that's because you can be more social when you're bulimic. I mean, you can eat with everybody <laughs> and um, get rid of it easily enough. But 
a true diagnosis of anorexia nervosa, you probably can confirm this, the person is usually a social isolate, of, gets to the point where they're a social isolate and very, very self-centered. And um, because the fast, the diet that has no end has become the major MO. There's nothing else really going on. Joan, thank you very much for that talk. That was a, um, an amazing history. And I'm wondering if you could comment as a historian moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, I, as a parent of teenage girls and as a pediatrician who does a lot of adolescent medicine, am very concerned about the influence of social media now on our children. I know my daughter will post something to Instagram and will be very upset if nobody likes her picture within the yeah. next half an hour. Yeah. And that immediate gratification and that immediate feedback that our adolescents are being challenged with right now that is very different from 100 years ago, 50 years ago, or even in my own adolescence, um, which wasn't that long ago, but still far <laughs> enough ago, um, pre-internet, pre pre-cell phone, where everybody had it sitting in their side. So I was wondering if you could comment. Well, I think the potential for self-scrutiny, mm -hmm. which is also public scrutiny, now is enormous. I mean, look at the issue of selfies. I gave the talk that I'm giving here at 4 o'clock two places. They shall remain nameless, but one was Cornell, but this is where. I gave it in another place in upstate New York, and three students sent me selfies, and one of them was a nude selfie. <laughs> as, I mean, as a faculty member of some 30 some odd years, I have never, ever, I, I didn't ask for it. Um, um, I understand what the student was trying to do. She was trying to say to me, yeah, I got what you were saying uh, in that lecture, more body projects, so here, uh, here's me, you know, nude. Um, yeah, I think your daughter's age group um, has the usual adolescent anxiety and preoccupation with what am I like, what's my identity, what do people think about me. I can see that in diaries going back into the 1870s. You know, I walked downtown in, in um, what town was it? Oh, I think it was in Worcester, Massachusetts, a diary says, in the 1870s. And the other girls were buying feathers for their hats. And I didn't know. Right? In other words, she was cut out of the feather buying activity. <laughs> or I mean, that kind of stuff is there. It's just loaded, that developmental anxiety about identity and appearance. Okay? It's not as intense then as it is now. And now, when you have that normal developmental process going on, you also have the overlay of the technology, which allows you to show your picture to, you know, what, 500 people? Uh, and you want a response in five minutes, and everything is supposed to go quickly, and you're supposed to look like a celebrity, um, and you need to be educated to the fact that those people, what you're, the pictures you're seeing are not real. I mean, we really need to do a job on our girls, in particular, to convince them. Uh, they need to learn some visual literacy about the world in which they're living. Um, yeah, I think it's a really tough problem now. So, last point, I, I failed, I didn't, I didn't see that uh, Dr. Gladys Frankel also is in the back. So, are all the resources for those who have concerns about 
patients with uh, eating disorders, Marcia Heron, a nutritionist at Gladys Fireflow, and a psychiatrist, a psychologist with special expertise. Um, do we know what room at 4 o'clock at the college? 28 sills would be for the body project if you're interested. Thank you again. That was wonderful.